Welcome to the 250th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. One of our newer members, and until his arrival in Chicago, a comparative stranger to our war, the Canadian Vice Consul, Mr. Alastair Lapierre, has frequently astounded me with his knowledge and with his desire for still more information about the Civil War period. An Englishman, solicitor, and then war hero before his present career, I feel that he is well suited to introduce our speaker, Mr. Napier. I feel greatly honored by having been asked to introduce to you Sir Dennis Brogan, an honor which I much appreciate. I've been given two warnings. The first was a most sensible one, to be brief. The second is that Sir Dennis is an unreconstructed Yankee. Now, most of us who are concerned with the Civil War have our own foibles or idiosyncrasies, if I may use these terms. One of mine is that I consider Judah P. Benjamin to be one of the most neglected and underestimated figures of the Civil War. I'm not, however, a Confederate, and like Kentucky in 1861, I intend to preserve strict neutrality. As an ordinary American said to me about two years ago, they were all great men. Sir Dennis and I have at least two things in common. Both of us have or have had connections with Glasgow, Scotland. Secondly, both of us are interested in the Civil War. Sir Dennis as an expert and myself as an enthusiastic amateur. But we have a third thing in common. Both of us are aliens or foreigners. This poses a very interesting question concerning the contribution or the role of the foreign expert on or observer of another country. This is not the time or the place in which to indulge in philosophic speculation. I think, however, that it is a truism to say that just as none of us, as individuals, can attain an objective view of ourselves, so it is very difficult for a country to see itself or its history in a proper perspective. This means that, very often, the best view can be obtained by the intelligent and unprejudiced outsider. As an example, because of, or in spite of, the Quebec Act of 1774, Canada is present undergoing perhaps its most severe test as a national entity since Confederation. I do not know whether this is an English-Canadian or a French-Canadian problem, but what is perhaps the best book on French Canada was written by a foreigner, Mason Wade, an American history professor of Rochester, New York. In the case of the United States, there are some startling examples of what I would call the intelligent outsider looking in. Even today, some 130 years after publication, 
One of the best guides to the characteristics of the American people is contained in the French writers de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Another example, again a French writer with a phenomenal understanding of the United States, is André Siegfried, the author of America Comes of Age and America at Mid-Century. Neither should one overlook Bryce's American Commonwealth. However, it is when one studies the Civil War without which no real understanding of this country is possible, that the impact of the foreign critic or observer is so marked. Thousands of books have been written about this cataclysmic event, and I have no doubt that thousands more will be written. A few of these books will endure for all time, but of these few books, several were written by foreigners. I can so well remember, as a young boy in England, reading a one-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. This book, of course, was Lord Charnwood's biography, one of the outstanding Lincoln biographies. It was this book, perhaps more than any other, which started my own interest in the Civil War. And then there is the biography of a man I greatly admire, General Sherman, the master of modern warfare, and the author of the phrase, War is Hell. I am, of course, here referring to Little Hart's incomparable biography. Henderson's biography of Stonewall Jackson is also among the Civil War classics. And then there are the volumes on the Civil War by the Comte de Paris and the reminiscences of the Prussian officer, Heros von Bock. And finally, one should not overlook the diaries the Russell Diary with its brilliant description of Lincoln and the Fremantle Diary. The man I now have the honor to introduce is perhaps the greatest transatlantic authority on the United States, and he may well be compared to the authors already mentioned. A Scot from Glasgow, his interest in this country stems partly from a childhood spent in California. He is a graduate of Glasgow, Oxford, and Harvard, has taught at London University, and is currently a professor at Cambridge. He was recently awarded the Benjamin Franklin Medal by the Royal Society of Arts. For more than 30 years, his scholarly output has been prodigious, his special studies being France and the United States. Among his books on France are the following. The Development of Modern France, 1870 to 1939, published in 1940 and with nine impressions in 13 years. The French Nation, Napoleon to Pétain, published in 1937. His books on the United States include Government by the People, published in 1933 and revised in 1944. The American Character, published in 1944. The Enigma of Abraham Lincoln and Politics in America, both published in 1954. America in the Modern World, published in 1960. And American Aspects and a Fresh Appraisal of the Civil War, both published in 1965. I'm sure, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, that this round table and the centennial of the Grand Army of the Republic could not have a speaker more distinguished and erudite 
then the man I now call upon, Sir Dennis Brogan. Chairman, I should first of all thank you, and uh, thank you for mentioning my development model in France, because a new edition of paperback is coming out in a week or two and will be in sale for four dollars quite soon. <laughs> Second, it was my father who spent in California, not me, although I've visited that uh, interesting community frequently since that time. But what I want to speak about tonight is, as I said in my letter, the war as a war. I will control my Yankee passions by not continually referring to the legal title, the War of the Rebellion. I will settle for the Civil War. I will not accept the war between the states and still less Mr. Kirkpatrick's phrase, the War of Northern Aggression. Uh, I think you'll settle for the Civil War, if you like, before uh, this context, the war. Now, there is one drawback to American studies of the war, arising from the fact that it was a civil war. That's it. it involves a kind of peculiar passion which rather intersects and impedes technical scientific objective judgment. I don't think any of the numerous American books on the war, which I've read, with the exception of Livermore, avoids moral judgment of some kind. There is a question, immense literature on the subject, who started the war? How was the war run? Which committed the more atrocities? Which people committed the more treasons? There's an immense relationship which still goes on. I've been rereading some of it for another purpose very recently. For example, that admirable book of David Potter, Lincoln and his party on the eve of secession. Some less good books uh, written by Southerners, some less good books written by Yankees. I'm going to ignore all that and treat the American Civil War as a problem in military history without discussing the right of secession, the Confederate Constitution, the fact that the Confederate Constitution was put under the protection of God, which has never been done for the Constitution of the United States. I'm going to call your attention to the fact that the relative, relative success of the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the Confederate States of America. <laughs> I want to talk tonight, because I am, among other things, a military historian in general, about civil war as the first of modern wars. Now, it's very easy to say this, and it's often said rather loosely about many wars, but I think there is no doubt that the civil war was the first of modern wars for reasons I propose to set out before I discuss the character of the war in detail. First of all, it is the question of scale. It is very hard, as those have looked at the numerous computations, to estimate exactly at any given moment, still over the whole four years of the war, how many troops were under arms at any given moment. People passed through the regiments, left. One forgets that the war was still, if you like, a pre-pathological war, for example, Colonel Oliver Wendell Holmes, three times wounded, left the army 
before the end of the war to enter the Harvard Law School. Theodore Roosevelt's father, feeling he wasn't justified in joining the army, didn't say why, went and gave lectures to the troops on the importance of saving some of the money and sending it back to their wives. I could multiply the instances in which the whole idea of total war and total commitment was unknown. Regiments, as you know, marched off the field when their terms of enlistment ended. Soldiers gave up or came back for bonuses when their terms of enlistment ended. And very few troops were in the field in 65 who were in the field in 1861, and that included people right up to the rank of general. Nevertheless, if you consider the total population of the United States in 1861, at any given moment there were roughly two million people under arms. Now that's a higher proportion of troops for the population than anything known up to that time. At the very height of the French Empire, when the Grande Armée was founded, the whole, although the population of war was much greater, Napoleon's troops never exceeded the total size of the Union Army, drawn in a much bigger population. The Grande Armée may point out in this room was not the whole of the French army, but a series of corps d'élite organized, first of all, for the invasion of England, which was postponed for some time, and then sent to the great campaign of Austerlitz, the first seven corps. There was no such body as the Grande Armée in general, which people forgot to point out the Union veterans in 1865. But no country up to that time with the possible exception a year later of Paraguay, ever mobilized much of its population as the United States, or if you like the American people, North and South did in the Civil War. That was the first reason why it was the great modern war. It was the first approach to total war. The Americans here, as many other things, were the pioneers. The only rival, as I point, was Paraguay. Paraguay was and is a small country. And although from a military point of view it's desirable there should be no more Paraguayans, because if you consider the record, the most formidable soldiers history has ever seen, there are not, and were not very many of them, but already there were, I say this without any praise or blame, a great many Americans. The first war which pulled in to the army and to the navy, so high a proportion of its inhabitants was the war of the, I'm sorry, the Civil War. Secondly, the casualties, if you consider the war lasted just over four years, almost four, if you like, exactly four years, because Lincoln, as you'll know, was killed on the fourth anniversary of lowering the flag on Sumter. The casualties in the Civil War were the highest in proportion to the population engaged in modern times. A point often ignored in Britain is that the United States, by 1865, had lost a higher proportion, north and south, of its young men than Britain did in the First War. It's continually said in Britain, for example, that many of the weaknesses and faults between the two wars were due to the immense losses of Britain in the First War. But in the First <coughs> War, Britain lost a far smaller proportion of its population than the United States did, between 1861 and 1865. I believe this to be important because it showed that a democratic government 
could impose on its citizens far more serious sacrifices than an autocratic government could impose on its subjects. No British government at that time would have thought for a moment of imposing even the very unjust draft which was imposed during the war north and south. The French army at the time was run by an even more odious system of bonuses and exemptions and so the first great democratic war, if you like, was the Civil War. You see, I keep on biting my tongue as I'm about to say the War of the Rebellion. Now that has great social consequences because in the course of organizing this immense democratic army, a great many questions were raised and a great many questions were answered. Not all were answered, but a great many were raised. Here we come to a problem which perplexed me as a boy of 12 when I began to read about the Civil War, namely the collapse of the authority of the United States in the South. And if you grew up with the European tradition of history, this was almost inexplicable. What happened to federal authority? Well, of course, in 1861, there was very little federal authority. To give a non-military example, at that time there were no federal prisons. Federal convicts were farmed out, boarded out, with the local jails, good or bad. Almost the only official that a citizen of the United States needs see at that time uh, was a postman, a postmaster. And as you all know, so remote were people even after the war from realities that many postmen were shot in the suburbs of Philadelphia under the impression they were Confederate soldiers. <clears throat> that came to the post office adopting a grey uniform which bewildered the Philadelphians, never the quickest in the uptake of the citizens of the United States. Therefore, the collapse of federal authority was not in the least surprising. There were about, I've just checked it here, rather under 17,000 troops in the army of the United States, most of them on the frontier, and the only serious concentration of them in Texas, where, for reasons it would be unkind to go into, uh, the local Union general, betraying his oath, tried to surrender that group of 3,000 troops to the rebels. Now this is an unprecedented situation in which a great and already great and powerful government had hardly any physical means of imposing its orders. Look, for example, at the fate of Fort Sumter. These forts down the, down the Atlantic coast, right from Maine now to Florida, were of course designed, like the Tribune Tower, to keep the English from invading the United States. <laughs> no attempt was made in this direction, but the forts, like our forts in Singapore, were pointing outwards to defend South Carolina, Maine, some other places from British aggression. The garrisons were trivial. As you know, Fort Sumter wasn't finished. They were not serious military bases at all. Therefore, the Civil War began, the rights or wrongs of it, as I say, don't concern me, in a very curious military action in which, as you know, there was only one fatal casualty, and that was accidental. Uh, 
as often happened in London during the war, far more damage was done by British anti-aircraft fire to the inhabitants, I was one of them, than to the Germans. The only Union casualty was caused by the busting of a gun uh, supplied by the United States Army to its unfortunate troops. So that the Civil War has this peculiar capacity, it starts nearly from scratch. In a population of 30 millions, there were under 17,000 soldiers of all kinds. Needless to say, all armies being alike, most of the kinds were clerks, the equivalent of PX operators, plane operators, uh, non-combatant soldiers. All armies run to that. In the United States, this was perhaps more so than usual. The very few armed soldiers to go around and naturally required a great, great deal of staff work, the smaller the army. At the present moment, the British Navy has one admiral for every two ships, which is an improvement a few years ago, it made two admirals for every one ship. <laughs> well, the American army was rather like that. Therefore, the Civil War begins on a purely amateurish basis with one very important difference, namely the existence of West Point. I think if you look at the recruitment of West Point and the achievements of the West Pointers, West Point must rank very high indeed for the skill with which it trained a great many people, considering the size of the country and the total academic population, the skill and tact with which you got rid of some of them in peacetime, like Captain Grant, who settled in Illinois, if my memory serves me correctly, or ran railroads that Captain McClellan, but brought them back, having received at the point a basic education which turned out to be extremely valuable. As far as I can say offhand, and I'm not saying it offhand, the only great general north and south, the only two great generals north and south who were in service when the war broke out were Robert E. Lee and Philip Sheridan. All the rest were seconded to VMI, to railroads, to whatever General Grant did in Galena, there's much dispute about that, uh, to other jobs of this kind, in presence of colleges. So that West Point, if you consider all this, provided in this vast, amorphous, unmilitary country, a remarkable number of extremely competent soldiers. Many of them, of course, are incompetent. In all armies, the incompetence exceeds, as in many universities, the competence. Waste is involved in both the academic and military process. But these regular soldiers However limited their education was, and they were given a narrow education, copied from the Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, had learned certain basic qualities which they displayed quickly, discipline, order, army bookkeeping, which is very important, and the elements of military instruction. As I pointed out, other people have pointed out, when Philip Sheridan was sent to command the army of the Shenandoah, his best cavalry officer, Charles Lowell, was a member of the great New England dynasty. And what struck him about the new general was, not that he was a very good horseman, he wasn't, despite some of the pictures you've seen, but he ran the army like a businessman and spent a great deal of his time working over the accounts. 
This was partly due to the fact that Philip Sheridan was exiled from West Point for a year for ill discipline and spent the year as a bookkeeper. That probably accounts far more for his success than the fact that you've seen him galloping onto a battlefield in so many statues, and there's a statue in Washington galloping onto a battlefield in which, unless my eyes deceive me, it would have fallen off the horse in the next second if he'd kept on galloping that way. <laughs> so the first thing about the Civil War was the turning of an immense, amorphous, very unmilitary country quickly into one of the greatest military powers in the world, and this was largely done by a body of not more than 1,500 strong, namely the alumni of West Point. If you reflect that by the spring peninsular campaign of, 19, of sorry, 1862, the excellence of the northern artillery, and you consider that very few of the officers and none of the gunners can have ever seen anything more serious fire than an old rusty colonial cannon on the 4th of July, <coughs> the kind of artillery opposition that saved the day for the Union at Malvern Hill, for example, it shows not only how well the gunners at West Point were taught, but what good teachers they were. Now, this was an immense advantage and one of the points in which, or ways of which, the Civil War became the first modern war. Because there was no way of imposing on the amorphous mass of ex-militiamen, of bounty jumpers, of volunteers, of ex-volunteers, as you know, some people volunteer for each arm in succession. No way of imposing discipline on them except by giving them intelligent leadership. As Mr. Catton says in the last volume published very recently of his admirable book, General Schofield's description of the merit of the American soldier, he goes about his business as if he were running a sawmill or plowing. And if there's nothing to be done by plowing or sawing the mill, he stops. This prevented the American army from going in for some of the nonsense of the British army in the first war. It wasn't the American army's battle discipline wasn't wonderful, they couldn't suffer frightful casualties, but they at least knew when their generals were completely non-compressmentous, but it took a longer time to enter the slower minds of the British troops. For example, there were people who advanced to battle on the Somme in 1916. French troops advanced to battle a little earlier in the Chemin des Dains, who thought they were going to win the war. The American troops who attacked at Fredericksburg under I should have thought, with the exception of one or two British generals, the most incompetent soldier in history, Ambrose E. Burnside, advanced with immense courage, but with no belief at all that anything is going to happen in the battle, except they would probably get killed unless they were lucky. Now, this produced good battle discipline, but also produced an extremely flexible army, which could stand defeat without losing, not faith in the generals, they hadn't got much, but faith in the cause and faith in the victory of each side. Of course, the wrong side was wrong, as usual. That's the losing side was wrong. This meant that American soldiers, American officers, American generals had to adjust themselves to a highly intelligent, highly literate army, profoundly amateurish in its attitude to war, which turned out to be a great advantage because professionalism in war is, as the Germans have discovered three or four times, I hope for the last time, ends up in disaster. The 
result was that starting from almost nothing by 1863, the armies north and south, especially the very good armies north and south, I'm using armies in the sense Army of Tennessee, Potomac, Northern Virginia, and so on, were the most formidable soldiers in the world. Partly because, or perhaps mainly because, there was only a small, useful group of professionals who could teach them to handle guns, artillery, what you call cannon and rifles, uh, competently. But after that, everyone approached the problems with a fresh and open mind, or nearly everyone did. The main exception being the former senator from Mississippi, who was commander-in-chief of the Confederate armies. This meant that many tactical problems which European armies were fumbling over were solved. And they were solved, I may make such a blasphemous remark, were solved in face of the fact that American technology in war and in peace at that time was much behind European technology. What was superior was American brains and American versatility and American willing to try everything once. There's a famous Cambridge pamphlet suggesting reforms in the administration of the University of Cambridge, published in 1906, republished recently, nothing having been done in the meantime. It contains the great description of Cambridge academic politics. Nothing should ever be done for the first time. <laughs> well, that is the traditional attitude of most professional armies. It was not the attitude of the northern armies or the southern armies. Anything could be done once, and if it didn't work out, you didn't do it again, you did something different. Therefore you get the acceptance, and the quite quick acceptance by the armies north and south, of the nature of modern war. Now what do I mean by that? First of all, this was the first war in which railroads were used seriously. It's not true that railroads weren't used before. For example, the British built a railway in the Crimea from one extremely badly chosen base to an even worse chosen base. You could get to it quicker by train than on foot. The French, having quite a good railway system and using also ships, brought a large army into northern Italy in 1859 and then having got there decided not to use railways because Napoleon hadn't used them. So there were plenty of railways to take them towards the enemy. They walked, which is slower of course, uh, than going by train, at least in those old days, perhaps not slower now, but uh, slower than going, quicker than going by the New Haven, slower than going by Illinois Central. But the first armies to use railways as strategic weapons were the armies north and south. If you look at the West Point Atlas or any good other atlas, you can see the immense advantages of moving troops by railroad over vast areas. One, for example, of the most remarkable achievements when you consider the meager resource of the South was the movement of Longstreet's Corps west after Gettysburg. Other movements, mainly northern, but not entirely, uh, were extremely rapid, rapid concentrations of troops. Uh, these railways were very great prizes of war. The Louisville and Nashville was such a great prize of war that nobody was quite sure on which side the directors of the Louisville and Nashville were. They were open to offers uh, from both sides. But troops are moved by rail on a scale hitherto, and not only hitherto unseen, but not seen for a very long time after that. 
and a great deal of the strategy of the Civil War, I think, can only be understood if you realize that partly because of the size of the country, but the country covered fighting in the Civil War was less than the country covered in Napoleon's time by the French army. But the French army had to march rather slower and uh, didn't always arrive in time. And the American armies, north and south, where they had railways, used them. The south, as you no doubt know, suffered under two great disadvantages, rather. They had far fewer railways, and they were not relevant in many cases, because the great east and west transcontinental railroads, with one exception, all ran north of the Mason-Dixon line, or the border of the Confederacy, if you like to put it. Also, has been pointed out in one or two very good books, the southern railroads were short lines. They offered to change gauge, to change cars, to change engines. And it was, that's why it was such a tremendous feat to get Longstreet west into Tennessee so quickly. The northern lines were much more numerous. The lines, most of the lines were already con concentrating on Chicago. The tracks were more continuous. And, of course, General McClellan was, in fact, a railway operator. He had, in fact, entered the war as the head of railroad. But without going into the merits of defects of McClellan, whom I used to admire but have controlled my admiration since, uh, he certainly knew how to move troops. He used troops by rail, and of course you know the organization logistics, a new Greek word invented, I don't know by whom, in recent years. Greek has declined in Britain as it's risen in the United States. Uh, for example, we never had of empathy until two or three years ago. The handling of the transportation problem by the Washington War Department was a model which was never equaled up to that time, and I should say, given all the conditions of the time, never surpassed since. That's the first reason why the war as a war was the modern war, the first railroad war. Take, for example, going a year or two ahead, the Prussians Prussian general staff preparing for war, first of all against Austria and then against France, had the most elaborate and careful and skillful concentrations of troops for the outmarsh. But once they got up to these points, they put them on their feet. They got them off the trains. The French in 1870, with no plans at all, did wonderful jobs of improvisation. But again, the idea was to get the troops so they could march in a respectable way, in good order, with flags if possible, uh, and get beaten. That was what military science was about. The concentration, Moltke's concentration before Sadawa, if you consider it as a railway operation, as a masterpiece, if you consider it as a military operation, only the Austrians could not have defeated him. Uh, it was a, a frightful mess, and it took an Austrian general not to defeat the Prussian general. Just in 1870, it took French generals not to defeat him again because the same truths about modern movement were ignored. Then, of course, to move for a moment into tactics, a great many of the tactics of the Great War, I mean the First Great War, I hope it's only the first and we're not entering the third, were preceded in the Civil War. As I put in print, if you look at some of the photographs of the trenches around Petersburg, around Atlanta, you can pass them off as trenches in the first ward, except for the absence of barbed wire. But there was wire. And some of these trenches were better designed 
by Lee's engineers around Petersburg, by Joe Johnson's engineers around Atlanta, than any designed on the British side anyway, on the Western Front in the First War. One thing missing, two things are missing if you like. One was barbed wire, which came in very quickly afterwards, a Texas invention, I make no comments on that. It was necessary in Texas to keep people from removing other people's cattle, or everything has changed since then. And secondly, the machine gun. Otherwise, you could pass off photographs of the Atlanta or Petersburg or smaller operations as Western Front photographs of the First War. These are uh, some of the obvious changes which the Americans brought in. Then we get a change which I'm afraid is not accepted or even admired in the United States, the complete change in the role of cavalry, which is concealed by a great deal of gone with the wind array. It's my belief there never was a single cavalry charge in the Civil War, in the sense of the charge of the Light Brigade, for example. There were no great cavalry actions fought on horses. Such gallant, if misguided, efforts at the charge of the Light Brigade didn't take place. The famous Prussian charge at Marla II of the Todenrit didn't take place. The even more disastrous charge of the Chasseur d'Afrique at Sedan didn't take place. And the main reason for that was the Americans had too much sense. If you look at critically, or someone mentioned Harris von Borke earlier, he did not take part in charges. These were great cavalry raids. As I pointed out, the real error of the ca cavalry tactics of the Civil War was Patton. Horses were to be used to get troops to the front. They were not used as missiles, as was the tradition. In a book rather neglected by an American, Louvas, on the lessons the Europeans learned and forgot from studying the Civil War, he had a, what the French call a genial idea. He looked up a French military medical journal and discovered that a French doctor about 1880 decided, looking at the casualty list, to discover what happened to these great cavalry charges and what was the utility of cavalry with sabers, with breastplates, and all the rest of it. He went to the Prussian military medical archives. In the Franco-Prussian War, there were roughly 200,000 deaths. Of these six were caused by sabre wounds in cavalry actions. And I believe none were caused in the Civil War. Now, you get pictures, there are pictures in Harper's Magazine and so on of these things, but actually the remarks of the rank and file of the Army of the Potomac no one's ever seen a dead donkey or a dead cavalryman had a certain amount of justice in it. The great raids were raids. They were not great cavalry actions. I should say the last great cavalry actions uh, were perhaps at Waterloo. But certainly none in the 19th century, but British and French and American, German and other armies kept vast cavalry corps. For example, I knew a Frenchman since dead who went to the front in 1914 wearing a breastplate and carrying a lance. And since his horse was very shortly down, he was soon in the trenches. He found himself in the trenches resisting German infantry with machine guns and rifles with his lance. This was not a very good idea. 
Some of you know that many have read The Charge of the Light Brigade. When I was at school in Scotland in 1914, we were all taught a new poem written by Sir Henry Newbolt, The Charge of the Ninth Lancers, which we all memorized. Very bad poem. Only recently was it pointed out by some cad that that charge of the Ninth Lancers was far more disastrous than the charge of the Light Brigade because the Light Brigade did get out the Russian guns. Not a single trooper in the Ninth Lancers got near any German. The whole regiment suffered far bigger casualties and inflicted none on the Germans. If they had studied uh, the American Civil War critically, or even studied the charge of the Light Brigade critically, these troops would not have been involved in these preposterous operations. It's for this reason that, although I've read Mr. Catton's recent book, I think it's a little unjust to Philip Sheridan, because Sheridan had, who was an infantryman, short legs, very unlike a horseman, when he took over the army of the Shenandoah, accepted the fact that the old kind, and before that, when he took over the command of the cavalry of the army of the Potomac, accepted the fact that all of cavalry of that kind was over. And he used the horses, as Patton used his tanks, to get at the enemy and then dismounted them. As I pointed out, within a week of Sheridan taking over the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac, Jeb Stuart was dead, shot from the ground by a sergeant with a revolver. And the great, perhaps the greatest cavalry general of the war was neither Sheridan, certainly not Jeb Stuart, but Wilson, who used his cavalry entirely, shall we say, as pre-tank instruments in the great attacks and very powerful attacks in the south, uh, for example, in which he occupied Selma but didn't stay long enough. <laughs> so that the real lessons of the Civil War, which, as Lubas points out, began to be learned in the 70s, were forgotten by 1900. Take, for example, one of the problems I've come to a little later, the technical equipment of the armies. Sheridan's army cavalry had an immense advantage, they had Winchesters, and you could dismount and fire, and of course the Confederates, owing to technical difficulties, hadn't got repeating rifles. But in 1914, in the European front, only one army had issued a really effective musket, shall we say, to its cavalry named the British Army. And that was because the Boers in South Africa in 1900 using Mausers, bought for money from the Krupp family, had made a monkey of the British cavalry, whose uh, appearance was magnificent, whose uh, uniform very smart in many cases, but uh, didn't kill any Boers. On the other hand, the French army went to the front with breastplates and lances. The only improvement the Germans made, they went to the front with lances without breastplates. And of course, the Cossacks went to the front, as you know, covered with cartridges with nothing in them, and also with lances. So that by the end of 19, by 1865, the end of the war, both armies had acquired a new tactical sense, they used scouts much more, used trenching much more, they realized you could build up a defensive position very quickly, they used as far as they could, the North had immense advantages of course, railways much more, and above all, they'd put cavalry in its proper place, uh, as at the very most an information gathering instrument and at the very worst something that ought to be uh, off, been cut up by the Sioux at the little big horn as it was in fact happened 
when they tried a re genuine cavalry action. I withdraw my remarks. The last great cavalry action in uh, American history was won by rain in the face, not by Jeff Stewart. <coughs> now we come to things that are peculiar in the history of the war, which I can't altogether account for. The military, the resources of the North impressed all European visitors very much. For example, the food given to the troops. The average Union Army ration was twice the ration issued to a British soldier and four times the ration issued to an Austrian soldier. Needless to say, being Americans, they threw most of this away. Nevertheless, they were well fed. You had the first uh, refrigerated cars to supply the troops, the first effective ambulance in medical service, the first sanitary commission, which is the ancestor of the PX, with a little less craft. Uh, you had a whole series of facilities for the troops, for example, in clothing and so on, never equaled until the Americans came back to fight another great war in the first sec and the second wars. All of that side was magnificent, so was the use of telegraphs, so was the use of, for a short time, of balloons. I don't share the view that the failure to continue the balloon activities was a great disaster because they could only be used, not being very mobile, if you were conducting a siege. So it is possible if Grant had used them in 64 at Petersburg, he would have been better informed than he was when he launched some of his disastrous assaults, for example, uh, in the famous uh, attempt to blow up the mine, but I think Ambrose E. Bonnestide is enough to account for anything. It doesn't require the absence of balloons to account for disaster when that great master of the art of raising whiskers was commanding troops. But there are things about the Civil War which are peculiar. Already, in fact, since the 18th century, the United Americans have been pioneers in the use of rifles. The rifle brought in probably from Germany, was perfected in the frontier and then in the War of the Revolution and adopted by the British Army during that war from the Americans. The first great production in series of the French say, the first great spare part industry was at Woolwich, copying the Americans, making rifles with spare parts. And yet, the American regular army ignored, till the, almost till the end of the war, ignored the possibilities of the new rifle instruments. The British army adopted the old musket, was adapted as a rifled musket and used as such in the Crimean War. The French army adopted a rifled musket at the same time and the French army in 1859, for the first time that any country ever did, used rifled cannon. Yet, when the United States got into this war, although they were pioneers in the use of rifling, although already the very small military or naval establishment already was making very good rifled guns, like the Dahlgren guns, there was a curious hesitation in adopting this new weapon for the army. It didn't matter as much for the Navy, since there was no serious Confederate Navy. And the explanations of that given by various people since seem to me unsatisfactory. The drawbacks to, for example, adopting rifles as a uniform weapon and concentrating on rapidity of fire and the greater range of fire by a rifle 
One of the reasons given, north and south, was a very un-American one, namely it wasted ammunition. Now this is the first time in American history, in American government, that waste has prevented anything being done. <laughs> I should have thought the fact that wasted ammunition would be a great bonus point. And yet this was solemnly advanced by experts north and south for not arming both armies entirely with rifles. The South, of course, suffered a greater disadvantage. It could had to import its rifles or capture them. There was possibilities of manufacturing, nothing like the immense possibilities that American industry in the North developed. Now, the failure to adopt rifles uniformly had very important consequences which tend to be ignored. The old drill of the old traditional armies, which is also the drill of the old regular army in the United States, was based on the belief that musket fire was only effective at roughly 200 yards, and that most of it would be ineffective anyway. Therefore, the only way to get effect was rigorous discipline, so they all fired roughly in the same direction at the same time. One of the superiorities of, of the British Army was, for example, Quebec, was they all fired at the same time. There weren't better shots than the French coureur de bois. There were shots, but they all fired at the same time. Incidentally, as a proof of the difficulty of military history, no one yet knows whether they fired once or whether they fired twice. There's lots of conflicting evidence. The same way the superior to the Prussian army came from this magnificent discipline and the iron ramrod, so they could produce fire not very accurate fire, but the same fire en masse at the same time. And in the superiority of the French Revolutionary Armies came from the fact they had adopted, long, well, 25 years before the Revolution, the best musket, which was the one issued by Louis XVI to the armies of that notorious level, Colonel Washington. But these were muskets, the limitation of range was great, sometimes they couldn't be fired because they were damp, and above all, they had to be fired standing up. Therefore, you had to the discipline make troops stand up in two lines or three lines, firing whatever order you like. They were highly vulnerable as well as inaccurate. If you want to look at what that meant in battle, I suggest you look at Oliver Wendell Holmes's account of, as a concession to some of the rebels here, I should say, Sharpsburg, in which he points out he himself was wounded there, he got a second wound there, Standing up to fire this way, they're a wonderful target for artillery. But if you lay down to fire, you couldn't reload your gun till you stood up again. If you look at Gettysburg, or the pictures of Gettysburg, of course, you're behind a high stone wall, you can kneel and fire. And a great deal of the, looks to us odd, absurd drill of the great European armies and of the regular army rose from the fact you couldn't guarantee to give a, a mass of musketry fire unless they were all firing at the same time and could fire reasonably quickly, they could fire remarkably quickly, think of the difficulties, and that meant they had to stand up and therefore wonderful targets. In addition to that, until just before the Civil War and during to the South the Civil War was badly handicapped, Cartridges had to be bitten off to be fired at all. One reason why we know how bad French teeth were in the early 19th century is the reports of the army officers turning people down for the army because having no teeth, they couldn't bite the cartridges. Well, of course, American dentists could have dealt with that problem even then, but what a surprise, and they didn't deal with it more fundamentally, 
by adopting what already existed, the breech-loading rifle. At the end of the war, as you know, the Winchester rifle was used by the cavalry, used by Sheraton, used by various other pioneering officers, and used by such Confederate troops who could capture it. If the breech-loading rifle had been adopted sooner by the North, the war would have ended sooner because it would have reformed all the tactics. It would have to have been more realistic. There wouldn't be such slaughters at the bloody angle. Uh, the North would have had this technical advantage. I don't see any reason why this wasn't done except conservatism and the continuous belief the war was going to stop quite soon. That would be awfully wasteful to buy these new weapons. At any moment the war might stop and you would save the money. That's the kind of army economies which cost lives and don't save money. But much more difficult to explain, but not quite as difficult to defend, is the curious history of the artillery. That you could have rifled muskets and you could have breech-loading rifle muskets was known. The Prussian needle gun, which won the battles of 1866 and 1870, was a rather primitive weapon. Actually, there were in existence already better weapons. There was, for example, the Winchester. There was very soon the French Chasco. There was the Snyder. There were lots of weapons. They weren't very difficult to make, and once you adopted them, you got quite different tactics. I may say it took a long time to learn this. In the War of 1870, when both sides were using breech-loading rifles, it was impossible to tell the generals that the old tactics of marching up in solid blocks uh, was nonsense. But since the British army attacked in the Somme in 1916 in that order, one could forgive the Prussians and the French for not being abreast of it in 1870 since Lord Haig hadn't thought of this in 1916. That's Scottish tenacity for you. But more serious and problematic and puzzling is the history of artillery. Here we come to a problem which is the subject of several good books, the good book on the artillery of the Army of the Potomac, for example. Why didn't the North adopt a breech-loading field gun? The advantage was very considerable. The range was very much greater. The accuracy was very much greater. The kind of shell that could be fired was much heavier. This, I think, is a problem entirely in technology. I remember discussing the problem of making good modern artillery with one of the vendors of the 75, French 75, I suppose the most perfect weapon of its kind ever invented, never imitated successfully. And he said the whole problem is one of, chem is really a problem of metallurgy and chemistry. What the Germans discovered was not that we're very good to have a breech-loading field gun which would be rifled and for that range, but how to get an effective closed breech block which would close the breech block and produce the chemical to the chamber in which the chemical explosion could take place. And that required extremely refined tolerances, which could only be got by first-class metallurgy, and the only people who were first metallurgists were, in fact, the Krupp family. It was not a problem designing a gun, it was a problem of getting a gun in which the breech block would close, complete, complete composed chamber, the explosion would deliver the fire, and that couldn't be done unless you'd absolutely first-class steel, and the only country making the first-class steel of that kind at this time was, in fact, Prussia. Uh, this is a blasphemous thing to say. American metallurgy at that time was empirical, 
one of the troubles of the monitor and its imitators was that the things gave way at the seams because the metal wasn't very good. But even so, it's possible, it's very hard not to believe, that American ingenuity could have not have produced breech-loading field guns even if they didn't always come off. There is a defense made for this, which has some plausibility in it, that, for example, in the West and the Eastern Front and the Virginia Front, you didn't require range. You were firing at close quarters in the wilderness, and what you recover was rapidity of fire. And an old-fashioned muzzle-loading gun was equipped, fired much more rapidly than the breech-loaded. This is true. One of the reasons why the French underestimated the importance of the Prussian artillery was that the breech-loading gun, the breech-loading gun at that time, fired slowly because the recoil was much more violent. They were to be brought back by hand to be laid again. It wasn't until the French discovered the principle of the compression tube, which took the recoil, that you could have a really quick-firing gun. Therefore, it was argued in the Virginia wilderness, it was more that range didn't matter, you were firing at very close ranges, and the point was rapid fire. On the other hand, this doesn't explain why it wasn't used in the West with big fields of fire, for example, at Chattanooga, Chicago, and so on. I'm afraid it was conservatism and possibly an inability to believe you could produce effective weapons by kind of, by the breech block, closing the breech block. But I'm quite certain if somebody, some great gunner in 1861, had put it up to Pittsburgh to make one, by 1863 there would have been steel that would have produced an effective breech-blocked uh, field gun, which would given an immense advantage in range to the north. After all, already they had, as the Gettysburg artillery duel shows, considerable advantage because their guns, even the muzzle-loading guns, were superior to the south, most of which had to be imported or captured from the Yankees, and it became more and more difficult to capture enough guns from the Yankees uh, to uh, run the war. Then I want to end on one point, namely the strategy of the war. Now here, the fact that it was a civil war is again extremely important. What the Union had to do was to restore the authority of the United States over an area of roughly over a million square miles. Therefore, they couldn't do simply what Napoleon did, march on the capital of the opposing city, or what Hitler did. They had to destroy all the rebel authority. And this meant that the occupation of territory was extremely important. That's what, in a sense, the war was about. On the other hand, the South, or the rebels, had only to hold their territory to win the war. That was what the war was about on their side. Victory would not have been, was not in either case, the destruction of the opposite army but the destruction of the political authority, north or south. As you all know, Lincoln, in the summer of 1864, despaired of victory, in the famous sealed letter he left for his cabinet, and it is conceivable that if Jefferson Davis had not removed Joe Johnston, and Sherman had not captured Atlanta, the electors in 1864 would have voted that the war was a failure to translate the famous Democratic platform. Therefore, the, you can't discuss the strategy of the Civil War in terms of the way you discuss why Napoleon marched on Moscow 
why Hitler marched in Moscow, all any of these obvious European campaigns, you must discuss it and what were the political aims of the particular movements of the armies. And here, in the long run, it was a very long, very bloody long run, the northern policy paid off because nowhere in this vast area where the north once established authority did they ever lose it. They began picking up bits of territory, Port Royal for example, the islands in the Carolina coast, they saved all the border states after some fighting, they picked up fragments of territory here and there and more and more territory. Now each of these gains was, if you like, Dick, point of a purely academic military historian, unimportant. But the war was, I say, a civil war, and consequently, as the war went on, and more and more territory fell into the hands of the North and could not be recaptured, because there's no instance of the recapture of Union territory once it was occupied, I mean, of Confederate territory once it was occupied seriously by the North. I mean, there were disasters like General Banks' absurd campaign in the Red River in Arkansas, but roughly speaking, every month saw more and more territory put under Union control. If you conceive, or could conceive, a war going on forever, over 10 or 20 years, it would have ended up with all of the Confederate states being taken over by the North. Of course, it couldn't end up that way because the North would have got tired of the war before that if nothing else had been done. But I think it's unjust to criticize northern generals, even the stupider of them, for occupying territory, for concentrating, even Helling, I think a very tedious character, for occupying bases and so on, because this was in one way what the war was about. It wasn't true, as it was, for example, in Frederick's Great's time, it wasn't true, as Clausewitz argued, the destruction of the opposite army was the most important thing. Nice work if we could get it, but in the immense area of over a million square miles, the army could get away. It was the demonstration to the South, or the rebels, that the thoughts of the United States was absolutely stable in the North and was steadily extending. Now this is the justification for a military operation whose military merits I think are exaggerated, namely Sherman's march to the sea. I don't take very seriously the accusations against Sherman or against the Union Army of being monsters, murderers, and so on. It strikes a European like me, I still read these articles in the South and description of Sherman as the tiller, etc., etc., to realize how little Americans know of war. If you consider what Europe has gone through in the last 50 years, Sherman was practically uh, Jane Addams, he was an American partner. But the fact that Sherman could march from Atlanta to the sea with hardly any resistance drove home the fact that the authority of the Confederate government was crumbling and it could not keep its authority anywhere where the Union concentrated its power. As I've said earlier, it's possible to conceive that if Joe Johnston had been kept there instead of replaced by the highly incompetent and I think not very attractive Hood, that the elections of 64 would have given the South the kind of negative victory the war would have ended somehow. But the moment it was possible for Sherman to cut loose, as he put it, from Atlanta and march to Savannah, it was quite obvious that 
the authority of the Confederate States of America was a diminishing and disappearing asset. It was not a great military achievement. The great military achievement there was one was marching north from Savannah up to North Carolina over a far more difficult country, but the political importance of Sherman's victory, the Sherman's campaign, which he foresaw correctly, was to demonstrate the South could not protect its own heartland. Therefore, I think the march, uh, Sherman's march, is a political, military political triumph, but not, strictly speaking, a military triumph. Then one last point. It was noticed when the great parade victory was held in Washington after Lincoln's death, a victory which, much to his annoyance, Philip Sheridan was not allowed to take part in. He was sent to the Mexican border. It was noticed how young Sherman's army was. Most of the troops were about 21 or less. It was the youngest great army the world has ever seen. And that's one last point I want to end. And one reason probably why with the limitations I've suggested, the Civil War was an intelligently run war as far as war can be intelligent. A recent book, not in itself intrinsically very meritorious, has pointed out some things about the ages of the generals. McClellan at Antietam or Sharpsburg was exactly the same age as Napoleon at Austerlitz. Napoleon and Wellington were the same age and they both retired from military business when they were the same age as Joe Johnson. And Lee retired when he was 56, which in the pre-war army would have justified him retiring as a lieutenant colonel, as he almost did in fact, to San Antonio or San Diego, wherever the good golf courses at that time were. It was a young general's army, and there hasn't, that hasn't been seen since. Napoleon's army had a very curious characteristic. The generals were younger than the colonels. But most armies are older than the colonels in more senses than one. If you think, go back to the very beginning, if you think of both armies, north and south, of consisting largely, we know what Grant said, robbing the cradle and the grave, but the troops he was facing were not robbed from the cradle or the grave. It was an army of young men and young generals in a young country. I suppose the United States at that time had probably the youngest demographic, demographic balance in the world. That's why it could afford, in a sense, if you ever can use such brutal language, the immense losses, because it was a young country. With few exceptions, I've given the two, namely both are equipment difficulties, namely the failure to adapt to modern artillery and modern rifles, was an army almost free in the bad sense from tradition, with enough of tradition to stiffen the discipline, to stiffen the mere organization, logistics, and let Americans fight the war in their own peculiarly American way. And the peculiarly American way was simply, as General Schofield said, try something. If it doesn't work, don't try it again, try something else. Whereas the British Army has always gone on the sound principle if something has failed the first time, that's an excellent reason for letting it fail the second time or the third time, so you're quite sure it won't work. For that reason, in the last war, where the British had learned a great deal from American and other examples, many things happened in which, from the technical point of view, General Montgomery's armies were more efficient, were more veteran, were 
used the battle or rested it. But many odd things happened because the American troops in action, always anxious to get home, unlike most European armies who wanted to go somewhere else, uh, did things which were quite irregular. This resulted in disasters, resulted in some curious episodes, but that was the real spirit of the Civil War. What Schofield said, the way you run a sawmill, the way you run a, a fooling mill, the way you reap the crop, is what ought to be applied to the army. Alas, I'm afraid we've moved, as Buck said, of the French court uh, age of sophisters, or I would call them calculators. Buck used the word calculators too, has arisen. And I'm afraid in the computer age, we can only rely on bigger and better mistakes uh, organized by the highest mathematics but the old, brilliant mistakes, sometimes resulting in victory, like Missionary Ridge, are beneath us or above us. This, I don't think, is real from the point of view of a student of military art progress. Professor Brogan for being with us and for making a talk that I think ranks with one of the, some of the finest of our 250 meetings. We will forego the traditional and controversial question and answer session this evening out of respect to the professor's strenuous schedule and the fact that he is carrying a sore throat about. I would like to thank Mr. Gil Twiss, Mr. George Barkley, Mr. Julian Jackson for their work with the communications media, Mr. Mal Hoffman, Mr. Ralph Newman, and Ms. Margaret April for their most valuable assistance, Mr. Lapierre, and of course, Ms. Gescheidel and the library board. I've been asked to make one announcement. The next meeting, April 30th, is on a Saturday, and wives are invited, provided, of course, they don't uh, put their husbands under the threat of going out, uh, threatening to go out and buy a new hat to hold down his purchases at the auction. Mr. Harold Teitelbaum, and curator of the museum, and Ms. Wren, head of the display department here, will now be available in the museum to guide you, answer your questions. Refreshments are available in the outer area, courtesy of the library. Ladies and gentlemen, the 250th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable and the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Grand Army of the Republic are now a part of the history we love so well.